be in 2 Samuel 23. We already did 24 on Sunday morning. We're coming back and finishing up the book tonight in a very interesting section of this chapter. 2 Samuel 23 is where we'll be. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 2. We're told that everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is discontented gathered to David. And he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. It happened there at the cave of Adullam, about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem in a very hot, dry, rocky, mountainous area. And that's where it happened. David became captain of the losers which is a band of brothers I could easily sign up for. But these losers, these 400 men who came to David, as we're told, in distress and in debt and discontented, they gathered to him. They may have been losers in life up to that point, but they were loyal to David. They would stick with David every day from that day forward, through his entire reign. Several of these men will be a part of the establishment of Solomon's reign following the death of David standing strong and loyal to their king. Now look these three words up. Just wanted to get a real good sense of them. 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. The three words, those who are in distress, those who are in debt, and those who are discontented. And I thought on any given week that could be any of us. In debt, in distress, and discontent. Well, in distress is the uh, Hebrew word matzot, which means to be in dire straits, or oppressed, or better spoken in our lingo, stressed out. There were men who came to David at that cave and they were stressed out. Their lives were just too much. The phrase in debt is nasha in Hebrew. It means seized by their debt. In other words, their debt now had control of them. So not only were there men who were stressed out, there were men who were maxed out. Completely maxed out on all their credit. They had nowhere else to go. They were in serious, dire need. They were seized by their their debt. Stressed out, maxed out. And discontented is from the word Mara. Maybe you remember the word Mara. It means bitter. So by the time you go through being in distress and in debt, when you get to that point of being discontent, there's just a bitterness there. You're wrung out. So we've got guys who are stressed out, maxed out, and they are flat out wrung out. And these are the kind of men that gather together to David. They started out mighty miserable. They will end up mighty men. As we finish out 2 Samuel tonight, we get the pleasure of meeting some of these guys. Several are going to be named. Actually, 37 of them will be named in 2 Samuel 23. These are men who came in great distress, but they become men of great distinction. Men whose lives were changed by their attachment to the line of David. And that's so similar to us, isn't it? We come to the line of David. Jesus Christ in the line of David is our Savior and our God. He's our King and our Lord. And by coming and joining ourselves to that line of David, by being adopted in, like Mephibosheth was adopted into the family of David, so we too can go from being mighty miserable to mighty men and women of God. There are clues and hints all over this chapter as to how that's done. How, how we become like this gallery of heroes. And that's what it is. 2 Samuel 23 is a gallery of heroes. It will honor the men who fought for David, who followed David, who were faithful to David as their captain and as their king. 
And as I read this, I realized, man, this is for me. And this is for any of you tonight who come in the door stressed out, maxed out, or wrung out. This teaching is for you. I sat down Tuesday morning. I kid you not, it happens. And I was tired, and I was a little distressed, and I was kind of depressed. I told Cheryl, you know, I know those times in my life when, uh, when I am too busy, when too much is going on because I just start to wear down. You, you know what I mean. And we all go through that. And I sat down Tuesday morning and I was just <sighs> taking deep breaths and sighing, you know, my little dog Reggie's looking up at me like, what's wrong with you, dude? You know, I'm good. Give me a bone. I'm a happy dog. What's your problem? You know, and I looked at Reggie and I thought, oh, if I could be like you. Just lie around all day until I get a treat. Living from one treat to the next. I mean, that's life, right? You have to use the restroom. You go downstairs. You bark by the door. Someone lets you out. It's all easy. But I was tired. And I was wearing a little thin. And so I started to pray about that. And and I opened up to this chapter not really thinking about where we were going and started reading through it and I gotta tell you I started feeling mighty good reading about these mighty men and seeing how the Lord worked in their lives and the parallels to us in our lives it just it began to change my perspective as being in the word always does as being in prayer always does it really doesn't matter where I'm at in life and that's one of the amazing things about coming to the Lord is there is always hope there's always that sense, no matter how bad things get, and no matter how, how awful my decisions may have taken me, or how stressed out, maxed out, or wrung out I am, I still can stand before the Lord. And when I come to Him, it's like, there's hope. You're here. There's strength to be found in spite of myself. Psalm 24-7, it's a song we sing. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. So don't miss when we talk about His mighty men that the reason they're mighty is because He is mighty. The reason we have strength in our lives, the reason we are able to stand strong and firm in those rare moments of standing strong and firm is because He's mighty. He is strong. He is all-powerful. And we can rest in that. And when the distressed and the debtors and the discontent throw their lot in with the line of David, they became mighty men. And we become mighty in strength as well. Now tonight we're going to start on the top tier of the mighty men. The three, they're called. And then we'll move into the second tier. We're going to meet two more men who are just short of the top tier. They're not quite, they don't attain to, as the Bible says, the, the three. But they're better than all the rest. And then we're going to see the rest of what's called the 30. Now, if you count them up, there are 37. It doesn't mean that the accounting's off in the Bible. It just means that the 30 was a designation. It was a name given to them. It was a moniker. Oh, you're one of the 30. And at any, any given time, that number 30 would go up or down, depending on the battle. And a man might be a part of the 30 and be killed in battle and someone else would then be part of the 30 or maybe not. So it could be 28, 29, 35. But the 30 was the elite among the elite, the best of the best, the mightiest of David's mighty men. 400 men were called his mighty men. They were his crack squad. But then you get into the 30 and the 5 and the 3 and that's what we're going to look at tonight. And I believe that you're going to be blessed by it. Let's, let's pray for a moment. Father, we rest ourselves at your feet. And we thank you for your strength, Lord. 
And we thank you, Father, that you are mighty, so we don't have to be. And the truth is, as one Christian singer sang, we are not as strong as we think we are. Lord, we discover that when we get to the end of ourselves. And it might be at the end of a long week, Father, that we're just tired, or it might be at the end of a season where so much has gone on. Tonight, Father, I know there are among us brothers and sisters here who are in debt and tired of it. And there are those who are just distressed by life. And some, Father, possibly on that fringe of discontent where because of life, bitterness is beginning to set in. And I pray, Father, for your might and your strength. And I pray that you bear us up tonight and bring encouragement into this place by the power of your Spirit and the wonder of your Word. Speak to us and teach us tonight, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. We're going to look at the first three, the top three. Check these guys out, beginning in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Bashibet, a Tachamanite, chief of the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because of the 800, because of 800 slain by him at one time. In 1 Chronicles 11.11, 11, he's called Joshobim. But his name, his nickname given to him is Adino the Esnite. He speared 800 enemies in one battle. Not with one spearing. I mean, that'd be a long spear, right? To try and get it through 800 guys at once. But in one battle, boom, boom. And it reminds me of the scene, if you've seen The Lord of the Rings, where Gimli the Dwarf and Legolas the Elf are counting off their victims, their foes, as they're killing them in battle. They're fighting, and Legolas says, 20! And Gimli says, That's, I've only got two, that's not fair. And they fight more and they call, and they're calling back and forth through the whole battle. And I can see this guy, Adino the Esnite, doing that. I got seven. And his friend's going, Whoa, he's fighting strong. I got 25, 82, 800. <laughs> this guy was tough. And that's why he got a new call sign. Instead of Joshua Beam or Joshua Bashibet, which is not easy to say, Instead, they called him Adino, the Esnite. The V there actually isn't there in the Hebrew. It's actually Adino Etzen in Hebrew, and it means his ornament is a spear, which is pretty cool. You know, at the end of his retirement party, I'm sure they probably gave him like a brand new Mercedes Benz with a hood ornament that was a spear coming off of it. You know. <laughs> His ornament is a spear. That's Adino the Esnite. Then we see the next guy of these top three. After him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo. Now his father may have been a Dodo, but this guy was not. The Ahohite. He was one of the three mighty men with David. And when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle, and the men of Israel had withdrawn, he arose and struck the Philistines until, watch this, his hand was weary and clung to the sword... And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Don't miss who brought about the great victory. It was the Lord. With all these mighty men, the strength came from the Lord. He brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. No one else even had to battle. This Eliezer guy was such a stud. He stood with David, and he clung to his sword. You would not help. Have you ever held on to something so tight, and your hand just starts to cramp? Until you can't even move it anymore. That's where he is. That's how intense he was in this fight, fighting back to back with his king. And the Hebrew indicates, the the King James even translates, that he clave unto his sword. Clung is not a strong enough word. 
The Hebrew word there indicates he could not even take his hand. They had to pry his fingers off his sword when the battle was over. He held so tight to it. He would not let it go. Joshua Beam or Adino the Esnite and Eliezer the son of Dodo and then Shema the son of Agi. Shema the son of Agi, verse 11, after him was Shema the son of Agi, the Herorite. And the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, and struck the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Now, a plot of lentils may not seem like a hill of beans to you, but there's a reason this guy isn't just a has-been. Sometimes you try too hard. Here's the deal with Shema. This guy is amazing because he did not leave his post. David said this is where I want you to take your stand this is where I want you to fight and he wouldn't leave it and yeah it was a plot of lentils by the way that was important because food was important at the time and the Philistines had a way of attacking they had an MO in those days they would attack at harvest time for one reason because the Israelites would be out working the fields and they would have to immediately drop their harvesting tools and and race for their swords I mean they, they would come upon them at the worst possible time harvest time And they did it also because they could not only kill Israelites, but they could raise their fields and steal their food and do much damage so that even after the battle was over, now Israel's left without their fields. So it was important for this man, for Shema, to stand his ground, even though it was a bean field. He had to stand his ground, and he stood strong, and he didn't leave. Everybody else fled. And Shema stood there fighting alone. And I read this story... Of this man protecting the beans, and I think this has to be true because no one would come up with a story like this other than the Bible. No fiction writer would come up with this stuff. I mean, defend the castle. No, defend the hill of beans. That's what we want you to do here. And that's what he did. And these three men were the mightiest of the mighty men of David. And you read about them, and I ask the question, how do you become mighty for your king? Are there hints, are there clues as to the strength of these men? What was it about them? How can we follow their lead so that we might be mighty men and mighty women of God? And number one, if you want to jot some things down, number one, be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. Like Adino Edson, who kept his spear lifted high. He kept his spear up. He continued to fight. He was constant in 800 Philistines, 800 of the enemy being killed. He held up his spear. He kept it lifted high. He reminds me of Moses and Aaron and Hur standing on the mountain. In Exodus chapter 17, you remember the story? They go up the mountain and Joshua, first time we hear of Joshua, begins to lead the children of Israel in a battle against Amalek. And as long as Moses' hands are lifted high, the battle goes well for Joshua. But when he starts to get tired and the arms start to come down, the battle goes poorly. And so Aaron gets on one side and Hur gets on the other side and they lift up Moses' arms and they stand there holding his arms. That's just their job. What a powerful picture of men and women praying together. When one gets weak, the other one picks up the slack. The prayers go up together. And there is strength in numbers as we come before the Lord and we pray constantly. And Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.8, too late, too late, it's not too late for me, so in 1 Timothy 2.8 he said, I want men in every place lifting up holy hands. How many times do I have to lift up holy hands in prayer? Oh, I don't know, how about seven times? 
or maybe 25 times. Maybe you're called to lift up your hands in prayer 82 times, or like like Adino, 800 times. You lift up the spear again and again and again, and you don't stop lifting up the spear. How long do we have to lift up our hands in prayer? The answer is long enough not to get your answer, but long enough to deepen your relationship with the Father. Because you know that's what prayer is really about. It's not about getting stuff. It's not about having immediate response because sometimes you will not. Sometimes you'll have very quick response. I think about Daniel and it's it's such a powerful picture in the book of Daniel. How he prays to the Lord and, and there's an angel standing there before he's even done praying. He opens his eyes and the angel's standing there tapping his foot just waiting on him going, well, I wonder when you're going to finish. I'm here. I'm ready. Let's go. And then within the very next chapter or so, Daniel's praying again for a day and two and three. And a week goes by and a second week and a third. For three solid weeks, Daniel is crying out to the Lord. No response. And at the end of the three weeks, Gabriel comes to him and says, man, I'm glad you kept praying. I had to get help from Michael just to fight my way through the prince of Persia to come and answer your prayer. Sometimes God answers immediately. Other times it takes some time. And I, I still need to be reminded of this, that God sometimes will not answer prayer because He just wants us to be in prayer. If He answers like that, we'll go, Great, thanks Lord, and we're off doing our own thing while He's standing there saying, I want relationship. I just want to spend some time with you. And maybe when you're not getting your immediate answer, you and I get to spend more time together, and so He will wait but there's a constancy about Adino in the way he continues to lift up his spear over and over and over. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Pray without ceasing. Don't stop. Just keep it a non-stop, ongoing prayer. James 5.16 says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And you might say, Well, that lets me out. I'm not a righteous man. You are in Jesus Christ. You cannot be any more righteous than you are when covered by the blood of Jesus. And so don't miss that. The effective prayer of a righteous man. We are righteous children of the King and our prayers are effective because we come in the name of Jesus saying, Lord, by Jesus, through Jesus, in Jesus we cry out to you. And he says, that's good. That's a name that I respond to. So be constant in prayer. Secondly, how do I become mighty for the Lord? Cling to the Word like Eliezer who clung to his sword whose hand clave unto his sword. He could not get... I mean, it cramped to his sword. When was the last time your hand cramped holding your Bible? To where you could... I mean, you had to peel your fingers off. You're like, oh! This is just too... i got to get my hand off of this thing. Man, if I die before he comes, I pray that I'll have to peel my cold, hard, dead fingers off of my Bible. Cling to the Word. Paul says in Ephesians 6.17 to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. By the way, I've got to tell you this. Hayden, my, my 11-year-old, had to lead devotion at the Christian school, his 5th grade class. Uh, was it yesterday morning, Cheryl? And so he came to me, Dad, I need, I need some help. I need a, a devotional to, to tell my 5th grade friends. And it's mostly boys in this class. Two girls and like 12 or 13 boys. And I said, you need a devotional, huh? i got a great story for you. And so I gave him the story of Eglon. 
And Ehud, Ehud's, you know, into Eglon's belly and the fat closed over the belly and the sword got lost somewhere in there and then all the goo and stuff started pouring out. So that really horribly graphic story and I thought, fifth grade boys will love this. <laughs> and I gave it to Hayden and he took it to school and I guess it was a big hit, right? Yeah, they loved it. Hayden had it. He was so excited. All right, that's that kind of Bible stuff I can get into. And I'm like, well, that's why we want to get the sword into you, Hayden. Your word, Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. So cling to the word. Be constant in prayer. And then like Shema, who stood firm when everybody else fled, be committed to service. And your service may be protecting the beans. And I, not even meaning to be funny here, but your service may not mean beans to anybody else. Your service may be something that's just, how important is that? And you may even question from time to time what the Lord has you doing. You look at yourself and you look at your active service, your position, your role, what you do, and you go, no one would miss me. They would have missed Shema had he fled from the field of beans. The next time it was time to make some bread or have a meal, they would have missed it. Don't let go of your service. Be committed to your service. Even if your service seems less impressive or unimportant, you stand firm. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Paul said, Let a man regard us in this matter as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. What is the key aspect of being a committed servant? Just to be found trustworthy. To be doing what you were called to do when the Lord comes. Just to be serving. And it doesn't matter if it's flashy or amazing or impressive. I was telling a worship team tonight, well, I, I just heard, and this is so cool, that there's a, a group of about 20 or so soldiers in Iraq that are downloading messages off our website and, and listening for Bible study together. And I'm like, wow, I'm teaching in Babylon. Yeah. <laughs> but there were times, gang, in the first year or two of the bridge becoming... A church, a meeting here, there were times, I shared it with staff this morning too, that, that I would walk down that path and, and know maybe ten people were going to be here on a Wednesday night. And in our numbers conscious society, and especially in our numbers conscious ministry, we think, okay, I spent the whole day studying and working on this and ten people are going to show up. And I'd pray on the way down, Lord, fill the barn. And I'd walk in and there'd be like three people, Hey, Rick! <laughs> Guess you want a more relationship with me or something because you didn't hear that prayer. You're not answering yet, you know? And it's only now that I begin to realize that sticking to it week after week after week, and I'm not, listen, and this is, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back because there were so many weeks where I just didn't know why. I didn't know why. We had to keep teaching and keep recording on that silly little recorder and here we have every teaching from Genesis through 2 Samuel and Revelation on the website available and being used in other places. I couldn't even have imagined that. Constancy, commitment in service, constancy in prayer, and clinging to the Word. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 21, to the faithful servant, He said, You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. I want to be in charge of many things right now, Lord. I want to be a big wig right now. And He says, Slow down. You be faithful with a few things now, and we'll talk about many things later. And by the way, the later, when he says, I will put you in charge of many things, I think is an indication of the millennial kingdom. 
and may not ever even happen in this life at all. But he will, his standard for choosing roles in his kingdom is going to be how faithful were you. Not how big, how bright, how fantastic you were in ministry. It's going to be, were you there day in and day out? Did you stick to the role you were called to? You were faithful in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Now, these three things, I went through these and I'm looking at these guys and I'm going, okay, this is, I mean, how many times have we heard this? Pray more, pray a lot, you know, be in the Bible, serve. Come on, how basic can you get? How fundamental can you get? I, I began thinking about the Wizard of Westwood. Some of you sports fans will know who I'm talking about. John Wooden. John Wooden was basketball coach. He was one of basketball's most famous coaches. And among his Hall of Fame achievements, he coached the UCLA Bruins for 10 NCAA titles. Seven of those titles in a row. He was one of the most winning coaches in basketball history from 1964 to 1975. And when asked how he did it, his answer was always the same. Fundamentals. Fundamentals. His team would talk about the fact that their practices were dribbling drills, passing drills, defense drills, shooting drills, and more dribbling drills. And they would do these things over and over and over. It's like, coach, we know how to dribble. I experienced this going to John Wooden's basketball camp when I was a kid. 1977, we wanted to play games. We wanted to scrimmage. We wanted to show our stuff. You know, as, as very powerful elementary school and junior high basketball players. <laughs> and you know what we did for a week? Dribbling drills and passing drills and defense drills and shooting drills. And John Wooden came down to the camp two or three times during the week and every time he would say, fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals. And some say, I want to move into the exciting things of the spiritual life. I want to scrimmage the enemy. I want to play the game. Isn't that the mark of maturity, leaving behind the elementary things? I think there's something biblical about that. Well, let's consider that. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. The Hebrew writer says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of instruction about washing and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Move on. Grow up. Be mature. But you notice what he never says. He never says, let's move on from Bible study. Let's get away from that thing. We've had enough of that. Let's move on to more fantastic, exciting things. He never says, it's time for us to get beyond prayer. You know how to pray now. Great. That's elementary. Let's get on to something else. He never says it's time to move beyond basic service in the church. You've served for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Now it's time for you to do something fantastic. He doesn't say that. Gain the mark of spiritual maturity as we press on is growing in the fundamentals. It's always remaining in the fundamentals that we might grow more mature in Christ. These are the building blocks. The Word of God and prayer and constancy and service. These are the building blocks of a growing faith. And you could be five minutes into your Christian walk or 50 years into it and these building blocks need to be there because they will grow a stronger faith in us. We will grow to be mighty men and women of God. Keep your finger there in 2 Samuel 23 and flip over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. 
Hebrews 11, similar to 2 Samuel 23, is a hall of fame. 2 Samuel 23, the gallery of the, of the mighty men of David. Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of the faithful. And we see this listing throughout this whole chapter of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. We read about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, Moses. We read of, of Rahab and Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. And in verse 33 it picks up and says, Who by faith conquered kingdoms and performed acts of righteousness and obtained promises and shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong. They became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. By the way, imprisonment may, may sound all dramatic and glamorous, but it's not when you're sitting in prison. Now, I don't speak from experience, but I'm just making an assumption here. That when Paul and Silas sat with their feet and hands in the chains in the midst of the prison, that wasn't a fun place to be. And there had to be moments. We know for John the Baptist, when he was in prison, there were moments of doubt. It's a hard place to be. When Paul was in prison, do you imagine that that he, he must have thought from time to time, I could be doing so much more for the Lord. If I was out, going from town to town, planting churches, but I'm in prison, Lord. There's got to be more I can do for you. It says in verse 37, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. That was the way Isaiah, by the way, was killed. They put him into a log, and they sawed through the log, and Isaiah alive. And that was how he was murdered. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Now it's not sounding so glamorous. Boy, the, the verses before that were great. Quench the power of the fire, escape the edge of the sword. Woohoo! Great mighty fighters wandering in the desert and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. That is a stunning statement. These are people who lived out their very lives being faithful to the Lord like Moses his whole life and yet he received nothing of the promise he didn't even go into the promised land until later at the transfiguration but that's another teaching for another time it tells us they did not receive what was promised but in verse 40 because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect or would not be complete they need us as much as we need them therefore Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And I read that and thought, this this is where my morning began turning around on Tuesday. Yes! There's strength and there are mighty people and there are great witnesses and these people had hard times and these people were distressed and in debt. These people were discontent. But they became mighty in the Lord, so I started feeling a little better. And the next verse says, fixing our eyes on all these great people and their mighty works and their deeds for the Lord. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So after this great list of these great people, the writer says, but don't look at them. Don't look at them. You look at Jesus. You don't take your eyes off Jesus Christ. You stay focused day in and day out on Jesus himself. Verse 3, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It is really hard to think about Jesus and be bummed. It's really hard to think about Jesus and be worried or be stressed. Because the more I think about Jesus, the more I see the one who truly has the power to control my life. This, by the way, is exactly why these three men attained to the level of the three. Why these three men, more than anyone else in this chapter, are the three best of the best of the best of David's mighty men. Because they kept their eyes on their king. They did what they did for their king. When everyone else fled, Shema stands in that field for the sake of his king. When everyone else fled, Eliezer stood back to back and fought with David. He would not leave his king. They kept their eyes fixed on their king. They considered their king above all others. Watch this. It tells us in verse 13 that the three of the thirty chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time at the cave of Adullam while the troop of the Philistines were camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David's hometown is surrounded. There's a garrison of the enemy there in David's home. They have infiltrated the land. It's harvest time again, so they want to they rip the people off and they're trying to fight and they're getting in there at a bad time. And in verse 15 it says David, he's in the cave now, remember, he, he had a craving. And he said, oh, if someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And in his thirst, and in this season of despair, David's sitting there and he's, his mind's kind of drifting back to childhood. Oh, man. I love that water from the well in Bethlehem. I can almost taste it. Oh man, I would love a drink from there right now. That would be great. He's not commanding it to anybody. He's not telling anybody to go do it. He's just thinking out loud. And so the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and they drew water from the well of Bethlehem which was by the gate and they took it and brought it to David. These guys were considering their king above all others. They were more concerned about David than anyone else and they must have overheard what he said and looked at each other and said, let's get him some water. Let's go to the well. Come on, we can bust through there. Let's come back with a bottle of Bethlehem Pure. He'll love that. And so off they go. They bust through the line. They get it. They bring it back and they give it to David. What does he do? He would not drink it and poured it out to the Lord. Now don't think that David was doing this out of spite or or they didn't appreciate it. Now he just pours it out before the Lord and he said, verse 17, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should drink this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now don't get the wrong idea. Again, David didn't spurn their gift, but he poured it out before the Lord. Hold that thought. These guys were listening. They were listening and paying attention to the king when nobody else was. They overheard his thinking out loud. They knew what the desire of his heart was and so they acted. And my question is, do you listen to the king that way? 
I mean, this was kind of convicting for me. Do I hear God like that? Not, not what He's telling me to go do, or not when He's answering my prayer, but do I hear when God is speaking His desires? When Jesus is saying, Boy, I would just, I would just love to see the whole region on North Whidbey Island saved. I would be so cool if those people on, on their street would all come to know me. Do you hear the musings of the Lord? The brooding of the Father when, when He's thinking about things? Do we hear what's important to Him? So much of our prayers about what's important to us. How about, Lord, what do you want? Lord, what do you desire? Father, what can I get for you? How can my life today not be crying out, saying, Lord, work through me. Do this for me. Answer this prayer. I need to see you. I need to know you. I need to feel your presence. How about instead, Lord, what can I do for you? That's something that, that Russ Pittis asked me all the time. And it's something that you'll hear out of the heart of a servant. What can I do for you? Is there anything I can do for you? How about we ask the Lord that? Jesus cried out in John 12:44, and He said, He who believes in Me does not believe in Me, but in Him who sent Me. He who sees Me sees the One who sent Me. Well, how is that, Jesus? Well, because He's God. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in Me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears My sayings and does not keep them, I don't judge him. I didn't come to the world to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. And then he says this, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know what his commandment is. It's eternal life. Therefore, these things I speak, and he says this, I speak just as the Father has told me. It's not, God, I want to do this great thing for you. Jesus said, no, I'm doing what He already told me. I was listening. Are we listening to the Father and seeking to do what He wants us to do rather than saying, Lord, I need this. Lord, help me with that. How about, Father, what can I get you? So these guys go out, they get the water, they they bring it back to David, and he, he pours it out before the Lord. When I first read this, I thought, can you imagine being one of the three? If you didn't want it, David, give it to me. I'll drink it. He just pours it out. What's going on here? David poured it out as an offering of worship to the Lord. This was, in essence, a drink offering. This sacrifice of his men. And let's don't miss this. They honored David in bringing the water. And David then was able to honor the Lord in pouring it out before him. I'm not going to take advantage of my men. They overheard what I was thinking. It's great that they love me that much. They wanted to do this. But man, I'm not going to do any more than I've asked them to do. And Lord, this is for you. Lord, I'm going to give this to you. Consider what just happened here. The three breakthrough enemy lines to get to Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. So the three break through the lines of the enemy to get to the house of bread where they draw water from the well to bring back to the king. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I'll tell you, one of the prime places that the enemy moves into when he lays siege against us is between us and the word. 
This is a place that Satan likes to camp out. Like the Philistines around Bethlehem, he camps out around the house of bread. And he makes it difficult for us to get through. He, he does it by, by laying it out, does it? he'll water it down. So it's easier to read and we start missing things. He'll invade our schedules. He will distract us with other things, whatever it takes to keep us out of Bethlehem. He camps out like the Philistines and stays there. I heard this today. A comment was made about being involved with Bible study and ministry and someone said, yeah, my schedule just got too busy. Something had to give. I, I, I got too much going on. I can't be there Wednesday night anymore. I don't say this to make anybody feel guilty. But the reality is, if it's hard to get here, it's because Satan wants it to be hard to get here. If it's difficult for you to get into the Word at any stage or point in your life, it's because Satan doesn't want you in the Word. Because it's one of those fundamentals that as we cling to it, we are stronger in battle, and he knows that. The entire battle that that Jesus had with Satan when he was tempted was, was Jesus fought back with the Word. Three quotes out of Deuteronomy, man. And he, you know, he skewers Satan every time with the word, the word, the word. Satan functions just like the Philistines. They stole food. They messed up the harvest. And as we see here, they camped out at the house of bread to keep the Israelites out. And that's what Satan wants to do. Why? Because in the house of bread is where you find the sweet water of the Spirit. That's where the well water is that will quench the thirst and strengthen us all the more. Jesus said in John 6, 63, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. My words, my word is spirit and life. Well, which words, Rick? His, his spoken word or his written word? Same word! We talked about this a couple weeks back. It's the same word. My word is spirit and life. Well, yeah, but can't the Holy Spirit function outside of the word? The work of the Holy Spirit is not limited by the Bible. You know, when we close our Bibles, we don't all of a sudden shut down the Holy Spirit. However, that being said, I am absolutely convinced that the power of the Spirit of Christ is released in greatest measure for those who break through to the house of bread. Because the more you're in the Word, I know I've said this before, the more you're in the Word, the better you will hear the voice of the Lord. The more you're in the Word, the more you're going to understand His desire for your life. And the more attuned you will be to Him. And so there's a direct correlation between, between amount of time you spend in His Word and how much you're able to hear His Word. Break through to the house of bread. Break through distressed schedules to feed on the Word. Break through debt to drink freely from the well of Bethlehem. Break through discontent to joyfully worship the Lord. After all, what is the outcome of this Bethlehem breakthrough? They bring the water back to David and he pours it out as a drink offering. They begin to worship. That's the result of the breakthrough. Is worship of the Father. And that's the way it is. For those who will fight through to get to the Word, thirsting after the Holy Spirit, they will bring glory and honor and praise to King Jesus, our God and our Savior. I shared this morning with, with, our, with our staff that it's like being sponges. We wake up in the morning and we're dry, kind of crusty sponges. At least I am. I don't know how you look in the mirror in the morning, but I'm kind of that dry, crusty. And then if we come before the Lord, He fills us up. And we get, oh, you need to get full of the Lord. And then you start to go throughout your day and there are needs. 
And there are challenges. And there are people who need your love and your compassion and your understanding. And they need to hear about Jesus. And so we begin to pour out of that sponge what has been poured into us. And then we kind of get empty. Now we may not be dry and crusty, but we're kind of you know, soft and spongy and there's not much in there. And so we go back to the Lord. And He fills us up. And that's such a beautiful picture of, of, of how God works in our lives. He fills us up and we pour Him out. He fills us up and we pour Him out again and again and again. Soaking up, pouring out. And so these three guys, they knew how to love their king. They knew how to listen to their king. They knew how to bring the water to their king. And their king knew how to worship. And verse 18, now we get to the fourth greatest of the mighty men. He doesn't quite attain to the three, but he's, he's a great guy. Abishai. Actually, it's probably Abishai, but I'm going to say Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruah, was chief of the thirty. He swung his spear against three hundred and killed them and had a name as well as the three. He was most honored of the thirty, therefore he became their commander. However, he did not attain to the three. So not quite as great as these other three guys, but great nonetheless. Abishai. Remember Abishai? He's a brother of Joab and Asahel. And, and Abishai is the one who's always there with David, always ready to move, always ready to take somebody out. Want me to kill him? I'll kill him for you, David. No, I'll kill, I mean, I will kill him right now. I will kill him until he's deader than dead. Let me kill him. Come on, can I kill him? And David's always going, Abishai, chill out. <laughs> Relax. 1 Samuel 26. They're standing over the head of Saul who's asleep. I can kill him right now. Let me just put my spear right through him, right into the ground. That'd be great. Come on, David. Let me kill him. David's like, Relax, Abishai. When they're walking out of Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 16, again we see Shimei, this self-proclaimed prophet, cursing David, and Abishai goes, can I just go up there and kill him? I'll just kill him right now. Take him out. Just kill him. It's the easiest thing to do, David. And David's like, no, relax. They're coming back in, 2 Samuel 19, and Shimei comes up apologizing, I'm so sorry that I cursed you, it was a really bad thing to do, and Abishai goes, now can I kill him? Can I just kill him? Come on, I'll kill him for you. He's always ready to fight and take out the enemy. But I'll tell you something that's great about Abishai. Is that in his day, he would not be as great as Joab. Why is it the younger brother here? To trace it back, it's very interesting. God loves the younger brothers. Which is cool, because I happen to be the younger brother, so I think it works out real well for me. But in Scripture, he, he kind of goes for the underdog. He pulls out the person who is unexpected. Not the strong, powerful Esau. No wimpy little tent-dwelling, stitch-in-time Jacob. You know? And that's who he was. Jacob was an inside guy. While Esau was out fighting wild beasts, Jacob was playing checkers or you know, holding his mom's knitting while she... I, I don't know what he was doing, but he was an inside guy. The younger brother, Jacob, I have loved, the Lord says. Esau... Not so much. And so we see this Abishai, and, and he is elevated above Joab. In that day, in that time, Joab was the one with the name. Joab, the commander of the king's armies. Joab, the, the tough guy. Joab, who, who took out many people. Joab was a famous man, too. But Abishai, Abishai is called one of the 30. He becomes commander of the 30, and it's often that way. Men and women of renown today will be forgotten tomorrow. But those who are humble will be well known in eternity. 
Luke chapter 2, verse 1. I love the way this is written. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Big names. And everyone was on their way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. And the child isn't even named here. The big names are Caesar Augustus the Emperor, Quirinius, governor of Syria. These were the big names in that day that everybody knew. Not a single person alive in this moment had any clue who this baby was. Nameless, humble, puny little carpenter, pregnant fiancé from a podunk town in Galilee, and a little papoose. Who's that? I don't know. He's registering along with everybody else. But that nameless child, that humble birth, produced the name above all names. But at the name of Jesus, Philippians 2, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you realize how all-encompassing that is? Those who are on the earth, everyone alive at His coming, will fall to their knees, whether they said they believed in Him or not, they will fall to their knees and they will worship. And all the angels and creatures and wonders of heaven will fall down and worship. And all those under the earth will fall down and worship. Demons. Dead people. I don't know how you fall down when you're in a grave, but they're all going to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. The highest of names was a nameless child at the beginning of his life detailed by Luke. Fascinating to me. A name above all names. And Abishai is like that. He, he gets raised up. The Lord raises up the humble and abases the proud. We talked about that Sunday. So Abishai is set above Joab on the second tier of the mighty men. He's number four or five. Well, here's the next guy. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. Benaiah, I love this guy. He's a real stud. He's a man's man. His, ma- his name means Jehovah has built. I've been put together by God. I have a membership to God's gym. <laughs> I am a strong man. He is God's gym kind of guy. And verse 20 shows us this. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiah, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done mighty deeds, killing the two sons of Ariel of Moab. He also went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. Now let me explain something here that's lost in translation. Ariel is not a place. And it's not a person. Ariel literally means lion-like. Let me read it to you the way it's written in the King James. It's more accurate. 2 Samuel 23.20 says, He slew two lion-like men of Joab. Two men who fought like lions, who were fierce like lions, and Benaiah by himself fights these two guys. There's more basic training going on here, by the way, because Benaiah goes up against these these two guys, lion-like men, which prepares him then to go and fight a real lion in a pit on a snowy day. By the way, if you can't imagine it snowing in Israel, we got pictures. Clark knows <laughs> that it snows in Israel big time. And this guy goes down, and it's a, it's a powerful story. He fights a real lion in a pit. Snow's falling. It's freezing cold. He's down there fighting. Ever wonder why certain people attack you? 
kind of think, man, that's not fair. Why is he coming at me? Why, why is she on my back? Why don't they leave me alone? Ever wonder why you have to put up with others roaring their displeasure at you? Lion-like people who won't leave you alone. And they chew you up and they spit you out. Perhaps you're just being prepared for the day that you're going to face a real lion in battle. Sometimes we face lion-like people because we're going to come face-to-face with Satan or his demonic horde and we're going to have to be prepared to fight. So Benaiah goes up against these two lion-like men and once he bests them, he's had some training now. Same as David. Remember how David had training? He killed a bear. And then he killed a lion with his bare hands. And when he came up against Goliath, it was like, no big deal. Oh, he's big. He'll just fall harder. Because he was trained, he was prepared. And Benaiah is the same thing. We're given such a great picture here. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. By the way, if you want a wake-up call, go to voiceofthemartyr.com and find out what's happening to your Christian brothers and sisters, my Christian brothers and sisters throughout the world. Look at the kind of persecution people are facing on a daily basis now. Not having to sit in a barn, but out there living it and dealing with suffering and persecution. But we're given, again, a great picture here when Benaiah fought the lion. It was cold, he was down in the pit, and that's when the lion attacked. You notice Satan rarely attacks you when you're in the middle of worship? It's, It's rare that he comes in when you're sitting in a group and you're studying the Word together, or you're all on your knees together and you're in prayer and you're crying out to the Lord. It's rare that Satan goes, Hey, anybody want to fight? When does Satan attack? He waits till I'm cold, and he waits till I'm alone, and he waits till I'm in the pit, and then he comes after me. When I don't have the resources or the fellowship around me, when my heart's dry and cold, that's when he attacks. David wrote in Psalm 27:13, "I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living." See, David had faith. And in the worst case scenario, David was able to say, I would have despaired, but I didn't. Why not? Because I knew I would see Jesus. I knew I would see the Lord. He wrote in Psalm uh, 27, 14, Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Because the Lord is preparing us, gang, to do battle. And we're fighting on occasion. Lion-like people. For when we face the lion... He's preparing us to fight. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, The Lord is faithful and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So Benaiah is a strong guy. And then he goes on and says in verse 21 that he killed an Egyptian, an impressive man. Now the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and I love this, but he went down to him with a club and snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. That's Hollywood stuff. That's cool. I like that. He took the enemy's weapon and used it. Well, David did that too, by the way, remember? He first knocked Goliath, stunned stupid, you know, on the ground with the stone to his head that sunk into his head. And then he took Goliath's own spear to cut off Goliath's head. And this is what Benaiah is doing. What do we see here? Quickly, those of you who studied through the book of Exodus, what is Egypt a symbol of in the Bible? Anyone know? What is Egypt... I'll give you a hint. They always go down to Egypt. It's a symbol of the world. That's it. 
Egypt, every time you read about it in the scripture, think of it as a picture of the world and you will have your eyes open to some things that God is trying to say. And this man now finds, Benaiah, Benny, we'll call him, fights an Egyptian. Egypt is that picture of the world. First, Benny slays two lion-like men. Then he fights the lion himself. All those are symbols of Satan. The roaring lion. Now he fights and kills an impressive Egyptian, which is a symbol of the world. Fighting Satan, fighting the world, it's the call of the Christian life. Man, we stand firm, we resist the devil, he'll flee from us, and we fight and we stand strong in the world. But more important is this how does Benaiah do it? How does he slay this Egyptian, this, this picture of the world? He uses his own spear. He takes his own spear out of his hand and kills him with it. Now think about this. Jesus said in Luke 16.8 that the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. What do you mean, David? Or Jesus? Jesus is saying, non-Christians are sometimes smarter than you guys. Sometimes you become Christians and you start to follow me and Jesus would say, and you dumb down. Don't do that. You are not called to be stupid when you give your life to Jesus. He said, I want you to be shrewd. Look at the way the world does things. Don't act like the world. Don't behave like the world. But listen, he says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. It's one of the most confusing scriptures in all the Bible. What do you say? Buy ourselves some friends with unholy money? <laughs> Isn't that what it sounds like? Well, this phrase, wealth of unrighteousness, is simply mammon. Wealth of unrighteousness is another way to just say money. There's nothing righteous about money. There's nothing necessarily unrighteous about money. Money is not evil. It's the root of all evil. Okay, So it's not evil in and of itself. It can be used, and that's what Jesus is saying, it can be used shrewdly. It can be used wisely. Well, okay, Jesus, so what is a wise use of money? How can I use the Egyptian spear? How can I get a hold of of a worldly thing and use it? Jesus says, use it so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. In other words, use it for eternal purposes. Still having trouble understanding what Jesus is saying. He's not saying the end justifies the means. He's not saying do whatever it takes even if it's unrighteous. What he's saying is it's okay to use material things to secure an eternal future. And we do it all the time. The internet. Half of my Bible study wouldn't happen if I didn't have that tool. And yet 85-90% to of the internet is pornography. Man, it's one of the most worldly tools available to us. And yet, when used for the sake of the kingdom... It's incredibly powerful. It's of great value. There are times I absolutely hate technology. I hate computers. Because we can get so wrapped up in them. And yet, my Logos Bible study software allows me to have 25 books open on my desk all at the same time. I'm able to preach things at my age that I probably shouldn't be preaching until I'm you know, 70 or 80 because the knowledge is so available when I think back 40 or 50 years ago, what pastors had to go through to try and study, those are the impressive guys. 
You know, the Moody's and the Spurgeons who opened up a book and they got a commentary and they got on their knees and they just prayed about it and they didn't have half of the tools I've got. And the tools I've got, gang, are the mammon, the wealth of unrighteousness. They're just media, technology. And yet if we use them, we are grabbing the spear of the world and using it back on the world. Slaying the world in the spirit, as it were. Taking from the world this this tool that Satan wants the internet to be used as an evil, horrible, addictive thing. Gambling on the internet. Another major problem in our world. And yet Satan would use that and try and mess up Christians, non-Christians alike, take people out with it. And the Lord would say, use it wisely. You'd be shrewd. You get online... And like Sharon, my mother-in-law, you start emailing people who are dying of cancer and sending them encouraging notes. And suddenly, you're being very shrewd. You have just grabbed the spear of the world and you're beginning to use it the right way. Education. Man, use the knowledge we've got. Not so you can be bright and puffed up because knowledge does puff up, but use the knowledge that's available to us for the sake of eternal things. Use money for the Lord. Not for ourselves, for the Lord. Use a church building. Now, why would you bring that up, Rick? Oh, I don't know. Seeing as we're on the front edge of of looking at building a building, and I'll tell you something, my role in, in this whole building process is not overseeing the building of the building. It's making sure that we stay in the Word. And it's making sure that we are about the ministry of people, not the ministry of timber and steel and concrete. Because that's going to burn, gang. But we can use it. We can use it. We can have a footprint on the north end of this island. And we can be in a place where people can be brought in. The community can be attracted. Life can be changed. We can use it. It's an instrument of the world. And nothing more. Use it wisely. Use it shrewdly. Use the spirit of the world. And walk in the spirit. Verse 24. Going on to the end of the chapter. Names all these other guys. Let me just run down the list of names because they deserve it. Asahel, Elhanan, Shema, Alika, verse 26, Helez and Ira. Verse 27, Abiezer and Mebunai. 28, Zalman and Maharai. And there's Heleb, Etei and Benaiah, Hidei, Abi Alban, Osmaveth, Eliabah, the sons of Jashon, Jonathan, Shema, Ahiam, verse 34, Eliphalet and Eliam, and Hezro in verse 35, and Paarai. In verse 36, Egal and Bani, Zelek, Naharai, verse 38, Ira. <laughs> it's just great in this list. You get all these guys, these really tough sounding names, you got Ira. <laughs> but Ira made the list, and Garib, and look at verse 39. Uriah the Hittite. That blew me away. Uriah the Hittite, the most shocking name on the entire list. You know him as the husband of Bathsheba. You know him as the one that David sent to the front lines of battle. The man David murdered is listed with the 30 of the best of the best of David's fighting men. Which tells us something about David and Uriah. Uriah was not just an unknown soldier in David's army that he sent off to get killed. Uriah was a friend. 
or at least Uriah was well known by David as one of his inner circle, as one of his elite. This is a man gang who fought with David when Saul was going after him who stuck with David all the way until he was crowned king, who fought in his army. This is a man who was so loyal to the king and to his fellow soldiers that when David called him home and tried to get him to go sleep with his wife so, that she, she, so her pregnancy would look like it was by him, this is a guy who said, I'm not going to do that to my fellow soldiers and I won't do that to my king. Uriah is an amazing man. He deserves to be on this list. And yes, 2 Samuel 11 verse 3 says that David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And the moment they said, this is Uriah's wife, David knew who they were talking about. He knew Uriah. Oh, it's Uriah's wife. It's one of my guys. But David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And that's how intense lust can be. That's how dangerous it truly is. It blinds us to those around us, to all other needs except for our own. David was so intense on getting Bathsheba in bed, and then in covering up the affair, that he murdered a loyal companion, if not a friend. When you see Uriah's name on this list, it should cause you almost to choke up. And realize that sin and lust will kill even the mightiest of relationships. As happened with Uriah. Jesus said the opposite of this, John 15, 13. The greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Not that one sends his friend to be killed. You ever send your friend to be killed to cover up your own sin? That's something to think about. Ever send someone out there and leave them hanging and leave them busted or leave them in trouble while you're protecting yourself? See, that's how ugly and nasty and terrible a thing sin really is. Sin cries out for the protection of numero uno at all costs. And David sends his friend to his death. But I want you to consider things from Uriah's side. As we finish up tonight, think about it from his perspective. Uriah died serving his king. Uriah, when he was set out to the front lines of battle, I don't know, I mean, he's a sharp guy. He's a fighting man. When they put him on the front lines, he must have known this may be it for me. Did he argue it? Did he go AWOL? He said, no, I'm not going to fight up for... No, he goes and he fights because he is serving his king. He would do anything for his king. Thankfully, Uriah didn't have any idea that he was being betrayed. He didn't know what David was up to. He didn't know that Joab was complicit in this and that they were setting him up to be murdered. He had no idea. He was just fighting for his king. He was as loyal as he ever was. Totally unaware that he was a marked man. Clueless to this underhanded deed of David. And so for his part, he deserves to be on this list. He died fighting valiantly and loyally and deserves recognition for that. One last thing. Uriah died, ironically, because of David's mighty desire. The son of David, however, died because he mightily desires you. Let this be a message to the stressed out and maxed out and wrung out among us tonight. If that's you, if that's been you, or if it will be you, please don't miss how great his desire is for you. While men will desire and sin, Jesus just desires to be with you. 
David wrote in Psalm 18, verse 17, He delivered me from my strong enemy, and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. Lord, You rescued me because You delighted in me. What a great thought. Father, we thank You for the example of these mighty men. We thank You for the strength that we see, the trust that we see, the loyalty that's there. We thank You, Father, for the the pictures that You show us on how we too can be mighty for You and stand for You, our King. And that is our great desire. Lord, would You pour Your Word into our lives. Father, call us into more intimate times of prayer. And may we stay consistent and committed in our service, Lord. And we pray as we just fundamentally remain in your care that we will grow stronger, more effective for you, able to deal with the world around us wisely and shrewdly, able to fight the enemy, Lord. But most of all, we pray that you'll help us to be like Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.